Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts rejoice in your salvation. We are overwhelmed by your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you and praise you this morning for sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to offer us eternal life through faith in him. We stand in his righteousness this morning. We're grateful for the righteousness of the sinless Savior that laves over us and allows us to be able to commune with the one true holy God. Father, as we express our gratitude to you and and bring our petitions before you and make our request known to you, might you hear and grant our prayers. Mold them, we ask, according to your will. Father, we first look outside our congregation this morning to the universal body of Christ, and we thank you and praise you for the work you are doing in central Illinois. We thank you for Bethany Community Church. We are forever indebted to them for their ministry of the gospel to many of us for over a decade, their their faithful shepherding of our souls, their spiritual care for us, the, the kindred spirits that they are. Might you continue to bind the hearts of our congregations together in Christian love. We pray for the ministry of your word there this morning as they gather together on the Lord's Day to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray for the preaching of the word as Daniel opens his mouth this morning to tell of the glorious gospel. Might he speak the oracles of God, preaching by your strength for your glory, and might the saints be edified. We then look a little further, Father, to what you're doing in and through local churches across our country. We thank you for Grace Family Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. We praise you for the faithful ministry of the gospel there. We thank you for pastors Aaron Wright and Aaron Fry. We pray this week that as they shepherd the flock, that you will overwhelm them with your presence and that they will see much fruit. Give that congregation a blessed unity. Might they be bold in the faith as they evangelize in the different contexts that you've called them to this week. And God, as we look to the nations, we thank you for Pablo and Judy Perez and their ministry in Ecuador. We pray that as they continue to disciple young men and women and help plant churches in that region, that you will bless their efforts. As they keep their hand to the plow for the sake of your name, might you grant them endurance. Sustain them through the trying days. Might they be encouraged to press on for the sake of your glory. And for our congregation, Father, here this morning, might the text that we are about to look at, might this be true of us. Grant us grace to be people who selflessly serve one another, are quick to forgive one another. By the power of your Spirit, allow us to be folks who reflect the character of Christ well to the lost world around us. The humble, kind, meek, compassionate, loving King, might he be seen in us. Pray as the word goes forth in our midst, it will not return void, but that it will land on the good soils of our hearts as we are hanging on the words of Christ. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Please grab your Bibles that you've brought with you this morning and open up to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 will be our text this Lord's Day.
And when you found your place there, if you were able, please stand with me out of respect for God as His Word is read to us this morning. God says this to us in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. You may be seated. I have entitled this sermon, The Marching Orders of Covenant Community Church. The Marching Orders of CCC. It's important to note here that from the outset that this letter, uh, first written by the Apostle Paul, was a letter written to the church in Colossae, not to CCC here in Chillicothe, Illinois. But we seek to apply this text to our context here this morning because it is certainly applicable to what we are setting out to do as a church plant. Which leads me to the main point this morning. The main idea that I would like for us to consider from the text is this. As we look to glorify God as a church plant, our marching orders are the person and work of Christ Jesus himself. Let me say that again. As we look to glorify God as a church plant, which hopefully is the chief goal of everyone in this room As we look to glorify God, our marching orders are the person and work of Christ Jesus himself. And we're going to unpack what what I mean by this, but this is good news for you, brethren. This is good news for me. I'm confident it is good news for you as well, that we are not left without guidance and direction with how to conduct ourselves on this journey. We are not left to our own devices and imaginations with regards to how to treat each other and how to operate as a core team of this church plant. Matter of fact, we have been given clear and direct marching orders to follow from the God that we love and serve and seek to magnify. As you'll see in your your outline in the worship folder, we're going to consider this text under these three headings. Our reverent attire, our ruling agents, and our righteous ambition. We will consider our reverent attire in verses 12 through 14, our ruling agents from verses 15 and 16, and our righteous ambition from verse 17. And so as we first consider our reverent attire, verses 12 through 14 again read like this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here Paul is is telling us what our attire must be for this journey. Have, Have we considered our apparel, brethren? Have we contemplated what we are clothing ourselves with as we look to make much of God here in Rome? Paul says this is what you must put on. These are the things that must cover you like clothing. This is what you must don. When we lived in Washington State uh, prior to moving to Illinois, I had the joy of going through Fire Academy. And you are probably going to hear more than one firefighting illustration over the years from this pulpit, and so I apologize in advance. But I developed a, a love and a respect for that vocation, for that service. I think it's the best secular job in the world. Of course, that is uh, just simply my opinion. But if I wasn't a pastor, I would probably be fighting fire somewhere. Um, I may look to to get back into it in a a volunteer capacity, maybe even here in town. We'll see if the Lord uh, sees fit for that to happen. But, But in Fire Academy, the very first thing that they taught us was not fire science, It wasn't that you need heat and oxygen and fuel in order for fire to burn. It wasn't technique of how to do a hose lay to a front door or how to use a halligan to make entry or how to perform an efficient search. It wasn't how to connect to a hydrant or to operate the pump in order to get water to the building that is on fire. So what was it? The very first thing they taught us was the proper attire to put on before going into the fire. Because it doesn't matter how much you understand about fire science. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. It doesn't matter if you can execute a quick and flawless search. If once you're in the building, you last about two seconds. And so what was pounded in our heads over and over and over again was the proper equipment to don. We knew our bunker gear inside and out because without it, we were worthless. And brethren, Paul here is telling us what we as the people of God must clothe ourselves with on this journey. Put on then, he says. Now before we get into the specifics of what Paul is encouraging us to put on, we have to look at these verses in context because before Paul tells his church, the church there, to put on some things, he first tells them to put off. Let me read verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here is not a Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. We are to, according to the Apostle Paul, put to death the old way of life. We are to put off the old self with its practices before we can put on the new self. 
you, you see, when you, when you came into the fire station from home after the pager goes off, you're, you're usually wearing something like jeans and a sweatshirt. But because the way fire equipment and bunker gear is designed, because of the way it's designed, it, it helps regulate your body temperature. And if you have clothing on underneath, it doesn't let the equipment do its job. And so when you come in for a call, you have to put off the jeans and the sweatshirt before you can put on the proper equipment. Otherwise, what happens is you get into the building and the sweatshirt literally burns to your skin. It is dangerous. It is life-threatening in the right temperatures. And brethren, I warn you from the text to flee. To flee from the old self. If you claim the name of Christ this morning and are living a sexually immoral lifestyle, I plead with you to put that to death. Put it off. It it is not the reverent attire fit for this journey that we are on together. It's the reason the wrath of God is coming, the text says. And so we need to stop pretending. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Put it off. Remove it far from your person so that you can put on the new self and be ready and eager to engage with us as we fight the proverbial fires that lie ahead. In verses 12 through 14, we we see then that we are to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's talking to the church here. This isn't something non-Christians can legitimately do in a God-honoring sense. But church, as believers, as those united to Christ, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all, love. As we look to glorify God as a church plant, this is our reverent attire. We don't clothe ourselves with the way the world acts. We don't don the world's ways of treating one another. Rather, with great fear of God, with awe and with reverence, we wear compassion. We wear kindness. We wear humility. We wear meekness. We wear patience. We wear forgiveness. We wear love. Brethren, we wear the character of Christ who was continuously compassionate, endlessly kind, perfectly humble, faultlessly meek, impeccably patient, wholly forgiving, and boundlessly loving. The great example for us, as Peter tells us, that we must follow. I want to speak uh, very practically for just a moment. Coming from a large church like Bethany, and and this isn't in any way a particular, a knock on a particular size of a church or any church in um, any specific church in any way, but I think we need to acknowledge this morning that, that size dynamics are a real thing. In a church our size, it's going to be hard to hide from each other. It's going to be harder to hide when we are frustrated with one another. It's going to be harder to hide when we are annoyed. It's going to be harder to hide when we have sinned against each other or have been sinned against. I I do believe that, that simply on the basis of the size of our church, we will see each other sin more often than we are currently used to. And that is not necessarily because we are going to be sinning more, 
but it's because the community we, we seek to build here is going to be smaller. And the, the smaller the community, the more likelihood for, for genuine, real, authentic community. Parents in the room, I don't have to convince you of this. You are more aware of your kid's sin than I am aware of your kid's sin. Why is that? Well, well partially because you are with them more. You have a small community at home where real and raw is displayed on a daily basis. There are going to be things that drive you crazy about each other. There are things that are going to drive you crazy about me. The brother to your left, the the sister to your right, there are going to be times when they grind your gears. Why did they say that? Why don't they seem to care? Why has leadership decided to do it this way or to do that way? Why are we covering this topic again? Why haven't we covered this topic? Why is my Sunday school teacher making me recite this catechism again? Why is there such a mess after fellowship meal? Why do we keep, the kids keep tearing the hymnals out of the pews? There will be times when we can't stand to be in each other's presence. Lord willing, these moments will be few, but I promise you they are coming. And it will be more than just annoyances and preferences. We will sin against each other. We will hurt one another. We will unrightfully offend. It is inevitable as we seek to put sin to death in this life. But brethren, if and and only if we put on the right attire, will we survive the fire together. And in doing so, we will do much more than simply survive. But we must clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. This is the reverent attire the apostle tells us that we must put on. We could highlight any of these specifically, and and we will over the years as the days goes on, if if the Lord allows. But but this morning, I want to focus just for a minute on what Paul tells us to put on above all. Verse 14, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This may be an overstatement, but I don't know if there is a greater example today of our warped culture than the societal misconstruction and the delusion when it comes to what love is. We are all sorts of messed up across this globe, but particularly in our country when it comes to a true understanding of love and what it is. So what is it? What is love? Biblically speaking, right? If our sole and final authority is the Word of God, then what is biblical love? First, grammatically, is love a noun? Is it an adjective? Is it a verb? Is love a feeling? Is love an attitude? Is love something you do? How might we rightly understand what true love is? If the greatest article in our wardrobe is love, which the apostle argues it is, we would be remiss not to understand what we are actually getting ourselves into and signing ourselves up for. There are two main words. There are others, but there are two main words for love in the Greek New Testament. Agape and philia. 
And they're often generalized to mean that, that agape is, is God's love and philia is a less strong word that encompasses more of the, the horizontal, brotherly, affectionate love that we experience with one another. And, and that isn't a, a terrible understanding. But Dr. James Renahan in his book, True Love, he makes the case that these two words are far more interchangeable than we often admit. Dr. Renahan argues that, that we, what we see all over the pages of Scripture is really a, a mixture of both of these ideas. He says this, quote, We might say that love is affection and action. Or perhaps better, love is action saturated with affection. It is a holy attachment of one person to another which both heart and hand express the reality. It is the inward sense of deeply felt longing, desire, and delight, and it is the outward expression of appropriate words and deeds, end quote. Our Lord said this in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Brethren, is this us? Is this true of us? And believe me, I'm telling you that I'm preaching to myself this morning. I'm sitting next to you in the pew as I'm asking this of us this morning. Is this us? Is this true of us? Are we ready to lay down our lives for one another? This more than likely is never going to mean literally for us but it absolutely applies. Will you serve this body? Will you sacrifice for these people? Will your affections and your actions prove that you love them? Look around you. Do you love them? Are we bound together in Christian love? When you hear the prayer request that, that someone is hurting physically or spiritually, does it pain you? Are, are your affections for your brothers and sisters stirred when they are in the valley? Do the joys and the triumphs and successes of your fellow churchmen, do they bring you delight? Is there an inward sense of longing and desire and delight for each and every person in this room? And is there an outward action expressed through our words and deeds? Can I, can I get very practical, like, like really, really simple? If we, if we walk away with nothing else this morning, can we just make this one small change? Could we just tell each other we love each other more? I, I know we have to be careful with, with men and women and, and protecting marriages, and so please exercise great discernment, but, but especially the men in the room. We sometimes have a hard time expressing ourselves. We're brought up in this culture where, where feelings are for pansies. Man, what a lie from the pit of hell. I was on the phone with a brother the other day. Don't worry, it was none of you. But I hung up, or before I hung up, I, I said, I love you, brother. And he kind of stumbled and said, I, uh, You too. Like, come on. We can't even say it. 
We are reflecting the death of the Son, the sacrificial love of Christ Jesus our Lord. He laid down His life for us because He loved us, and we struggle to even say the word to each other. But again, this is because we're raised in this culture where it's just not the manly thing to do. And I think that's microcosmic of the world's problem as it pertains to their understanding of what true biblical love is. But this is what we must champion, brethren. Might love never be wanting at Covenant Community Church. Both in our inward affections and our outward deeds. We must clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. This is the reverent attire the Apostle Paul tells us to put on. Moving on to the text, the verses 15 and 16, again they read like this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We've considered our reverent attire. Here we are considering our ruling agents. The first ruling agent we see from verse 15 is the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Theologian John Gill said this, a metaphor is taken from the judge in the Olympic Games who was the umpire, the the moderator who determined whose the victory was and to whom the crown belonged. The apostle would have no other umpire among the saints than the peace of Christ. I don't know about you, but I enjoy the game of golf. Golf is, is such a great game mainly because it is incredibly humbling. Anyone can play golf. It's not all that difficult in theory. You have a stick, a round ball. You're trying to hit the ball into the hole. What could go wrong? And then you get out there and begin to play, and you realize everything can go wrong. Golf is hard. At least good golf is really, really hard. And it's all about your, your swing. The, the golf swing really is art, The reason the professionals are pros is because they perfected their swing. But what makes a perfect golf swing? Well, it's peace. You see, the different members of the body are working in harmony with one another. The shoulders are at just the right angle. The hands are placed at just the right spot on the club with an interlocking grip. The feet are in line with the shoulders. The knees slightly bent. The head never gets too far ahead or too far behind. Ankles flex at just the right amount. The hips rotate at the precise speed. And in order to hit the ball flush and make perfect contact, every member of the body has to be at peace with one another. If the eyes have a mind of their own and they're taken off the ball, or if the head is pulled out of the swing too early, or if the hips don't rotate like they should, the ball ends up in the woods. Story of my life. If even one of these things is off ever so slightly, There's not peace, and the end result is destruction. But the beauty of a professional golf swing is that its ruling agent is peace. And here Paul introduces us to our two ruling agents. First, the peace of Christ. You see, when sin entered this world, there was chaos. Utter and complete chaos. Chaos in the head, chaos in the heart, chaos in the hands. There was disorder, disorder turmoil, disarray, 
Not in the mind of God, but in time and space as it relates to mankind relating to God. There there was chaos with both respect to man's vertical relationship with his creator and also the, the horizontal relationship with fellow mankind. Pure chaos. Until a baby was born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. And the whole landscape changed. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Brethren, we have peace with God as justified sinners through Christ and Christ alone. The Prince who brought the peace The prince who is peace himself. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the agent that must rule our hearts, Paul tells us. The peace of Christ. Not only does the peace that Christ is and bring allow peaceful, reconciled relationship with our Heavenly Father, but it also allows peaceful, harmonious relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters as we seek to plant this church together. The reason I can sin against you, come to you in repentance, and you forgive me, is because the peace of Christ rules our hearts. How could we be bitter with one another? How could we not be willing to forgive? How could we not be ready and eager to extend forgiveness? Not seven, but 77 times. How could we not? If there is disagreement, if there is unrest in our body, how could we not pursue unity and harmony with one another? If it isn't self, if it isn't fame, if it isn't notoriety, if it isn't being right, none of those rule our hearts. Rather, the peace of Christ rules our hearts, brethren. The Prince of Peace brought reconciliation, not division, not divide, not discord. Proverbs 6 tells us that the Lord hates seven things. Do you know what the last thing is? One who sows discord among the brothers. Discord doesn't belong. Division doesn't fit in our assembly. It opposes everything Christ is. Yes, we are distinct from this world. We are cut off from this world. We do not coexist in this world. There is no peace between us and the world. But within the church, Christ brings peace, brothers and sisters. And this must rule our hearts. Paul goes on to introduce us to not only the first ruling agent, the peace of Christ, but another ruling agent, that being the word of Christ. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There is so much here. I would love to preach a sermon on just this one verse someday, but there are just a couple of things that I'm pulling from the text that I want us to notice this morning. First, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in my sermon on engaging in the preaching event that the preaching event on the Lord's Day during corporate worship, what we're doing right now, is the most important chunk of time each week in the life of a Christian. And I believe that more now than I did then. And it's not because of the man in this pulpit, but rather the God 
the preacher heralds. When the man of God proclaims the word of God to the people of God by the power of God to the glory of God, nothing is more momentous in your life than the God of the universe shooting the darts of grace and truth aimed for your soul in order to sanctify you more into the image of his Son. And by God's grace, we receive that blessing to begin each and every week. Paul is saying, let that word that comes to you, let it dwell in you richly. Let it dwell in you richly. Don't let it stop at your ears, but allow the truth of the word to penetrate to the depths of your being. Allow it to rule you. The word comes to bring peace to the Christian. The peace of Christ and the word of Christ, they go hand in hand, are the ruling agents of our hearts. But it's important to note that the Paul is talking here about much more than just the preaching. He's saying, let the Word, whenever it is ministered to you, let it dwell in you richly. When it is read, when it is preached, when it is prayed, when it is seen, when it is sung, what is happening? When the songs are sung in worship, what is happening? You are teaching one another. You are admonishing one another with the truths from the Word of God as you are singing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And and there are so many practical implications here. But I think a a big one is this is why it is so important for us to be able to hear each other sing. So many churches these days are like rock concerts. I I know a church where they literally provide earplugs to the first five rows because the music from from the stage is going to be so loud. Paul here is saying that as you are singing, you are admonishing one another. You are teaching one another. As you declare the truths from the word with your voice. This is a corporate exercise. It doesn't happen from top down. It's it's a a corporate horizontal reality. And, And this is why we affirm that the voice is the most important instrument in this room on the Lord's Day. Because it is with the voice that we declare these things. This is why you will never hear instruments in this room that, that drown out the voice, but rather instruments that help aid the voice. Why? Because it is through the voice that gospel ministry is happening in our midst. As you are weary, as you are heavy laden, as you come in here from a week of the busyness of life with a cup that has run dry, and you hear your brothers and your sisters around you proclaim, The Lord is my shepherd. I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in green pastures. He leadeth me. The quiet waters by. My soul he doth restore again. And me to walk doth make. Within the paths of righteousness. Even for his own name's sake. Paul is urging this church. And so let me urge you, dear brothers, to allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly in our corporate worship. And it doesn't stop there. After the benediction is another opportunity for you to walk into the fellowship hall, break bread together, and yet another opportunity to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as we administer the gospel to one another. As God's people, do you know what God's people do? They prayerfully and persistently proclaim God's word to one another. 
And so when the brother or sister sits across the table from you and proclaims the truth of God's word, let that word dwell in you richly. It's divine grace from God. It is the ruling agent of our hearts. Might this be ever so ingrained in the culture of this church? Might the Spirit be our help? There's so much more we we could say here. Maybe just really briefly... We also see in the text here an imperative to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And and from my personal estimation, the the church universal has largely been neglecting the psalms. I I wrote a blog about the often neglected plea from the Apostle Paul here in this text to sing psalms. And it'll be up on our our website under resources, under the pastor's blog. And I intend to, to post there frequently. And so if you have interested in reading that, feel free to check that out. But at the very least, we need to be committed to obeying the imperative here. And there is uh, much more that we could say, but, but let's move on to our, our third heading. Our reverent attire is the character of Christ. The, the ruling agents of our hearts are the peace of Christ and the word of Christ, which brings us to verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, our righteous ambition is the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, we all have ambitions, do we not? I, I don't know about you, but I have many ambitions for this church. I, I have many goals, many desires, many places I would like to see us go. For instance, this is the very first day of our church plant. I think there's no better day than today than to think about planting a church ourselves. Would that be healthy for us to do today or any time in the near future? No. We are more than likely 5, 10, 15 years down the road from something like that happening. But it's never too early to begin to work towards something like that, even if it's a a microcosmic or a micro advancement of of that needle, maybe something like putting $25 in a church planting budget. It could be a number of different things. But we all have ambitions. We desire to see lost people won to Christ and brought into our fold. We, we desire to grow spiritually and in number. We, we desire to see the leaders and shepherds and elders raised up and set apart from among us. And we desire to see missionaries sent from this church to make much of Christ. We are motivated people. And Paul tells us here what our highest ambition ought to be. The name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If our principal ambition is anything other than the name of Christ Jesus being made known, we might as well pack up shop and head home. This has all been in vain if not for Christ. The sweat equity we put into this building was in vain if our supreme ambition hasn't been the righteous name of Jesus. 
The hours and hours and hours that many of you have devoted over the last 18 months to keep this church alive, both physically and spiritually. If we sought to keep this church alive for anything other than the name of Christ, it has been an effort of contempt. This is a work of God. God did this. We are sitting here this morning because God did this. And what Paul is saying is we cannot confuse or conflate our ambitions. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. Whether in word or in deed, do it all, everything, in the name of Christ. Whether you're folding a worship folder, whether you're serving a child a meal, or vacuuming a floor, or singing in worship, or engaging in the preaching, or opening up at care group, or confessing your sins to one another, whatever, Every facet of church life at Covenant Community Church is to be done in the name of Christ. In the name of Christ is where strength is found. In the name of Christ is where power is found. In the name of Christ is where peace is found. In the name of Christ is where glory is found. We don't press on and plow ahead in Jordan's power. We don't press on and plow ahead in Lloyd's name or in Lloyd's power. We press on and plow ahead in and for the name of Christ. Brethren, if you ever hear anything from this pulpit other than the name of Christ, you better storm the stage. It is Him we proclaim as Lord. We prepare people to worship Him forever. As we look to glorify God as a church plant, our marching orders are the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. Our reverent attire is the character of Christ. Our ruling agents are the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. And our righteous ambition, God help us, is the name of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word to us. We are confident that as it went forth, it hit your intended mark. Your word never returns to you void. And Father, might your spirit help us to be what we preach. Might your spirit help us to put on the character of Christ. Empower us to be a people that are compassionate and kind and meek and humble and forgiving and loving. Continue to impress upon us what that means. What kind of sacrifice that takes of us as we look to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ and his character. Might the peace of Christ and the word of Christ rule in our hearts. And may we seek to make much of Christ in everything that we think and say and do. And Father, as we turn now to your table, Will you continue to sanctify us through this means of grace? Less of us and more of you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.